today I want to share with you a message that I've titled Travel Training for a Troublesome Team. Travel Training for a Troublesome Team. We're going to be in Luke chapter 9. If you have a Bible with you or if you've got a device that you can look up the Bible on, just ask your way to, to, to flip your way, tap your way, whatever it looks like, to Luke chapter 9. And we'll be starting out in verse 49 here in a few moments. But first I want to just tell you about some experiences in my life. When, when I graduated from UNC back in May of 2003, I took my first job as a software engineer with a company that was based out of Cary that provided instrumentation and control systems for water and wastewater treatment plants all around the country. And I'd never flown before, but in interviewing for this job, I had learned that there would be a pretty significant travel component to the job. They listed it as roughly 50% of the time, and it really kind of varied in spurts. Well, sure enough, about three months in, I had to take my first flight ever down to Florida, down to Orlando so that I could travel over into central Florida. And I remember my concerns as I prepared for that first trip. It was a lot closer to 9-11 then, back in in 2003, so the security protocols were even more strict than they are now. And I didn't have any clue, as this old country bumpkin from Pine Hall, about how to check luggage or how to obtain a boarding pass or how to find a terminal or a gate or how how to board a plane or how to rent a car. I was clueless. And so in preparation for my travels, I spent a lot of time just talking to my coworkers, quizzing them about their travel experiences. What had they learned from their years of traveling in the same sort of way? And thankfully, I survived that first trip with no major issues. And then I made several trips back to Florida after that. Then I was assigned to a job up in Minnesota that I spent months at. Then I traveled to Nevada and to California and to Maryland and to Wisconsin and to Alabama and to Kentucky. By the time I left that job, two years later, I had become a road warrior. I knew all about how to travel with efficiency. And to this day, I still keep a separate bag with a set of all the things that I would need to go on on a trip like that. So, you know, my shampoo, my toothpaste, my toothbrush, my soap, all of those sorts of items. I've got a bag to this day that still sits under the sink in our bathroom. So when Amy and I travel out of town, I don't have to scurry around to pack my toothbrush or any of those sorts of items. All I've got to do is grab my travel bag, throw it in my suitcase... And then when I, when I am ready to go to uh, the plane, uh, my shoes are off as I'm going through security. My backpack is unzipped. I've, I've got my tablet in my hand. My belt is out. Long before I ever get to the TSA agents who are there to order everyone else to do those same sorts of things. It's just an efficiency that I've picked up in this time. And then I could sleep I'll tell you, through a jet taking off, I have slept through takeoff a number of times. I could, except for the fact that I travel with my wife, Amy, on most occasions now. And Amy is not a comfortable flyer, all right? She does not enjoy the flying experience. She would not be sleeping through takeoff. So she ensures that I am awake to enjoy the flying experience with her. 
I've learned, for example, that, that when I go to check into a hotel, if I sign up even just the day before with the rewards company of that hotel, I can ask them at the desk, do you have any upgrades for members of your rewards program? And many times they will, in fact, have rewards for you, even if you've only been a rewards member for one day. These are some of the best practices that I have learned through this development career that have, that have helped me to be prepared when it comes to traveling. Some of those lessons came from my coworkers. Others of those lessons came as I learned from my own personal mistakes. And still others came from the experience of being on the road. Well, when we come to the latter part of Luke 9, we find that Luke launches into what some Bibles describe, Bible scholars would describe as this travel narrative. We're talking about 10 chapters of this long-going travel experience for Jesus and his disciples. And Luke, obviously inspired by the Holy Spirit, but, but Luke takes a, a, an approach to describing Jesus' ministry here on earth that's a little bit unique among those Gospels that we would call the Synoptic Gospels, those Gospels that cover Jesus' life in a very similar sort of way, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Luke does something different in that so much of this gospel to this point that we've looked at has dealt with Jesus' ministry in the northern region of Israel that was known as Galilee. But, but now as we get into verse 51, we read that, that Luke writes that Jesus was determined to go to Jerusalem. And then for the next 10 chapters of Luke's gospel, we encounter Jesus resolutely ministering in such a way that he is preparing for the saving work that he would undertake in that holy city, the city of Jerusalem. And Jesus' progression towards Jerusalem continues all the way into Luke chapter 19. So we're going to be on this travel of Jesus. This, this travel narrative will be the subject of many of our upcoming messages as Jesus and his disciples move toward that holy city. Now, let me just show you how quickly this theme is reiterated in Luke's gospel. In addition to what we have in, in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, in Luke 13, 22, for example, we find these words. And he was passing through from one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. Then in Luke chapter 17, verse 11, while he was on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. Then in Luke chapter 18, verse 31, Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. This continues all the way into Luke chapter 19, verse 28, where we read, After he said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. So starting here in Luke chapter 9, Jesus is headed to Jerusalem. Now the reality is that these 10 or so chapters don't recount this single linear trip from Galilee down to Jerusalem. Now in fact, as they're on their way to Jerusalem, Jesus and his disciples are found in ministry which alternates between the cities and towns in the north and the south in the area of Israel. But there is this shift that occurs at this point in the overall focus of Jesus' ministry in Luke's gospel, John MacArthur summarizes it by saying, 
that all that we've seen in Luke's gospel to this point has dealt with Jesus' coming. That is, from the angelic announcements of his birth to this slow recognition of his disciples as they ultimately come to realize that he is the glorious one, this one who is transfigured, the, the Messiah, the Christ of God. As they realize that he is this, as they realize that he is glorious, as they come to this realization, Jesus has now prepared them for what is next. And so all that's been to this point has been focused on his coming and the realizing of who this one is who has come. But now Luke shifts over to his going. Now he sets his face toward Jerusalem. Now he's headed for that holy city. And so Jesus is now determined to go to this place and to die for the sins of all men so that he might ransom us from the curse and to to be resurrected so that he might rescue us from the grave. And now his disciples have been trained. Now they know who has come and now they are ready to hit the road. They're leaving their home turf of Galilee. Their ministry is expanding into new places. They're traveling to places where they've never been. And as they begin this long journey toward Jerusalem, Jesus' disciples have a few lessons to learn about how to travel with his message. Much Much like those first traveling experiences that I had in my first job out of college, some of these lessons come from instructions that are given by someone who knows how they should travel, And then some of the lessons that we'll see here in this passage come from their own mistakes that they learn as they go. And that's why I've titled this message, Travel Training for a Troublesome Team. Because they do have some troublesome things that they do, as we'll see in this passage here in just a moment. But the key thing for us to keep in mind is we, as a people of God, dig into the Word of God today, is that as we look at these lessons from Jesus on how to travel with His message These are not just lessons for a select few who existed a long time ago. Christ, through his great commission, has called all of those who are his to go. Just like these first disciples, we are called to go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that he has commanded us. And like those first disciples... We travel with Jesus there in a very present way as our guide. For he tells us, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So if you are in Christ, if you've entrusted your life to him and he has saved you, then you are called, my friends, to hit the road with him. Wherever you go, wherever your travels may take you, he is with you and he is calling you to make disciples in that place so the lessons that we have here on how to travel with the lord's message are not just for the early disciples these are lessons for us my friends so let's hear now the mentality of the master on how to travel with his message as we open god's word here to luke chapter 9 starting in verse 49 if you're able i'd ask that you just stand with me as you honor the reading of god's word together Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 49. John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him, 
because he does not follow along with us. But Jesus said to him, do not hinder him, for he who is not against you is for you. When the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead of him. And they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. But they, that is the Samaritans, did not receive him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. When his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he returned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what kind of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went on to another village. Here ends the reading of God's Word. You may be seated. So from this passage, I want to share with you four lessons from the Master on how to travel with His message. The first one is this. Don't overestimate your value in ministry. Don't overestimate your value in ministry. That's the issue the disciples had. We talked last week about how selfish pride had caused them, even after they had seen the greatest one who ever existed in his glorified, unveiled form. Even after that, they come down and they have this argument about which of them is the greatest. As they're traveling with Jesus, they've started to overestimate their value. And Jesus brings this child by his side, and he says the greatest in the kingdom of God is the one who welcomes a little child like this one. And he urges his disciples toward humility. Apparently, that brings a little bit of conviction upon John, because if we come right out of that into today's passage, we see that he responds to what Jesus is saying here in Luke chapter 9, in verse 39, by saying, Master... We saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to prevent him because he does not follow along with us. That is, there was some other man, an unnamed man, who was carrying out a successful ministry in Jesus' name. But the disciples didn't recognize him. They didn't see him as a guy who had been in their circle. They didn't recognize him as one who had been following along with them. We don't know the name of this individual. We only know that what he was doing was having some level of success because John doesn't say we stopped him from doing this thing. We stopped him from diving demons out in your name. No, he says we tried to prevent him. And John and these other disciples had obviously started to think of themselves as an elite group. They had begun to believe that if anyone wanted to amount to anything outside of their circle of followers... Those individuals would need to submit to them. There was no room for ministry among the unknowns at this moment in their ministry. In fact, they were beginning to show a little bit of the spirit of the Pharisees, who so often tried to keep individuals out of the kingdom of God rather than welcoming them in. And Jesus wasn't having any of that. So Jesus tells John in verse 50, Do not hinder him. For he who is not against you is for you. Jesus wasn't upset about this parallel ministry that was running alongside his. Apparently it was a legit ministry. 
the guy was, after all, casting out demons in Jesus' name. And Jesus says, don't hold him back. Because Jesus knew that the 12 apostles were not going to change the world on their own. They needed workers from all sorts of backgrounds. They needed those who were seasoned in the faith and those who were new in the faith. They needed all of them working together for this one Lord to do his will. And when the disciples say, who does this nobody think he is? Jesus says, that's a somebody who's working for me. So in this work, Jesus teaches us that we ought not overestimate our value in ministry. They were thinking that this separate ministry was a ministry that was competing with their own. But Jesus says, he who is not against you is for you. That's an interesting statement. He who is not against you is for you. Especially when we compare that to what Jesus will say later on in Luke chapter 11, verse 23. In Luke eleven twenty three, Jesus says, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Now, these statements are not contradictory. They're two separate concepts that are on play here. So you might frame it as two different questions. One question would be, are you against the people of Jesus? The second question would be, are you against the message of Jesus? You see, this man was not against the work or the people of Jesus, and he was not against the message of Jesus either. But you can be for Jesus' people and still against his message. There are some individuals who are tolerant towards the church, who will support the church, but they will not support the Lord. They will not bow to the gospel. They, they, they appreciate us and they tolerate us because of the good works that we do, because that's what Christ has called us to do. But they do not believe the gospel message themselves. And tolerance may cause you to support the church. It may cause you to support Jesus' ministry, but it won't set you right with Jesus in and of itself. If you have not received his salvation, you will still be scattering rather than gathering with him. In your family, for example, you may support the church. You may be tolerant of the church. But if you have not entrusted your life to the gospel, you will likely be scattering your own children as they likewise will probably not hold to the gospel because of your instruction. So that's just a practical way of saying ultimately that there's a distinction there between ultimately supporting Jesus or opposing Jesus and his church his people and opposing his message but jesus is saying that we at times need the support of those who do not believe but who are also not antagonistic to our beliefs he who is not for us or he who is not against us i should say is for us in some aspects we need partnerships but we must be careful who we partner with and what we strive to do in the context of those partnerships we may partner, for example, with someone who is sympathetic to the cause of the church if he offers to put in a good word for us at the city council or if he offers to extend his home for us as we're sending missionaries overseas. But we would not trust someone who is in favor of the church, intolerable of the church, but not in sync with the message of the church, opposed to the gospel, we would not allow that individual to be one who would go with us then to proclaim the gospel. 
Jesus makes it so clear that we must not overestimate the value of our personal ministry or the ministry of the organizations of which we are a part. It's a dangerous thing to exalt your ministry instead of exalting the Lord. It's a dangerous thing to exalt your church or your denomination above exalting the Lord. That's what the disciples were doing here. And that's what many a church in our day is prone to do as well. We must never envy the success of the faithful church down the road who are having a more faithful, a more fruitful ministry. Ministry for us, my friends, is not a copyrighted monopoly. Serving the Lord is not limited to one church or one group or one denomination or one theological tradition. All who faithfully serve the Lord deserve our encouragement and support. We must look for new ways to encourage work that goes beyond our walls by helping to plant churches and supporting missionaries who are taking the gospel to new people and to new lands. We need to remember that there are many champions for the Lord's work in our personal ministry as well. When we get the idea that we're indispensable to the church in the ministry that we carry out, and we assume that no one else can do what we do, we have this potential, my friends, of doing very much harm to the church. None of us should have the sort of mentality that says, this is my job, and everybody else better keep their grubby little hands off of it. That sort of mentality is a disease that will kill a church. I had lunch with a pastor from our association a couple of weeks ago, and he serves at a church in Winston-Salem that was launched back in the fall of 2016, so just two and a half years ago. They're part of an international church planning network. They're also a part of our Pilot Mountain Baptist Association. But that international church planning network that they are a part of has obviously given a lot of thought into planning new churches and how to maximize the impact of a newly planted church. And that really shows in the results of what's happening at this church. The church has only been around two and a half years, as I mentioned, but they now hold four services every Sunday, two in the morning, two in the evening, and they're averaging about 1,000 people in attendance on any given Sunday. But in our discussion, he said that any church that really wants to multiply its impact should, should first undergo the growing pains of having multiple services and multiple teams to maintain those services. He, he told me that there's totally different teams. So in each of the four services that they have, the two in the morning, the two in the evening, there's a different team that carries out every ministry that goes on in that time. There's a different worship team up playing the music. There's, there's a different team of teachers that are teaching all the children. There's a different team of guest services that are out front grand, greeting individuals as they come through the doors. There's, there's a different team of sound uh, folks who are running the sound system. And that's a, that's a lot to maintain. But, it, but what he's describing is that when you go through the process of refining and defining what needs to be carried out in each one of those jobs, you are more prepared to multiply yourself as a church. You can imagine how they might take one of those four services and plant it as a new church somewhere else in town because they've already got the team that's ready to do that work. And so he said that having these multiple services is what's caused them to have to define that clarity. And when you share the ministry you do with, with three other teams, nobody can say, hands off, that's my turf. 
And I can see how having multiple services has created this culture of multiplication in his church. Now, I don't necessarily buy into the idea that we have to have multiple services if we're going to be a multiplying church and a multiplying people, as God's called us to do. If you know, our church mission statement is to multiply God's glory on the earth. That's very much what we are striving to do. And yet I do think that this multiplying church mentality, that's a mentality that I hope we're cultivating because it's a very biblical mentality. But this sort of mentality does require each of us to not only realize that we're not indispensable, but it should also cause each of us who is serving in the church in some way to actively be looking for others whom we can involve in what we are doing. And I think that we have some room for growth in our own fellowship here in this area. There are a number of ministries or activities or responsibilities that are carried out in our church that if I mentioned the ministry or if I mentioned the activity, what would come to your mind is an individual who carries out that work, an individual who is crucial to that work. And that's not a bad thing in itself. The fact that one individual might come to mind is likely the result of that one individual being the steadfast servant who is faithful and who strives for excellence in the work that he or she does. But it would be better if we could involve more of the folks that God has blessed us with such that someone is unable to carry his or her responsibilities on. If someone can't make it on a Sunday morning, if someone else is, is, if someone is called home to be with the Lord, it, it is not a crippling function for our church. The work continues to be done because we are sharing the load. And should we come to the point where we are ready to multiply our impact by having multiple services or planning another church, there will be individuals who are ready to step in and are ready to champion the work without tiring out our diligent servants. So I say this, are you the only one who does some sort of ministry here at the church? If so, I want to encourage you, look for others who you can involve in your work. Seek out a couple of others whom you can equip to be helpful in this task and refuse the mentality that says, this is my turf, you better steer clear of it. Not that I think there's a lot of that mentality in the church. Really, I think what often happens is there are certain individuals who are willing to step up and take the work on. There are individuals who are willing to do it, and there are a lot of individuals who just are not looking for a chance to get plugged in. So there's a balance of that that says, If we are members of the church, if we have been gifted by his Holy Spirit to be involved in ministry, then we need to be ready and looking for opportunities to serve. And I say, just as a summary, don't overestimate your value in ministry. That's the first lesson from the master on how to travel with his message. The second is this. Don't underestimate your value in ministry. Don't overestimate, but also don't underestimate your value in ministry. What's cool to me is that the first couple of verses that we see here reveal for us that Jesus is at work through a nobody. I mean, who is it that's casting out demons in his name? The disciples don't know him. He's not a part of the elite group. And I almost wonder if Jesus didn't just give random gifts to this one so that he could teach his disciples an important lesson here in these verses. I mean, it's not like these disciples were hitting home runs in their own ministry. Lest we get the idea that the apostles were some sort of spiritual giants, we should consider how they got so much wrong in just Luke chapter 9 here. They were unable to drive out a demon when Jesus went up on the Mount of Transfiguration because they had refused to pray 
to God for help. I mean, people who are there with Jesus on the earth, studying ministry with him, are prayerless. They misunderstood Christ's mission, thinking that he had come to set up this immediate kingdom. They let their pride keep them from asking him further questions about this topic, as we saw last week. Then they argued over who was the greatest. And now they try to prevent others from doing the Lord's work, and they rush to judgment when they are rejected. We may think that the disciples were a lot different from us, but they're very much like us. We live in a day where churches and Christians compete against one another. Part of that's just our consumer mentality. We're so used to it in the workforce. We want to draw in all the customers. We've got the best marketing. We've got the best appeal, the best messages that we want to share. And so we bring that with us into the church where we think we've got to have the better thing going on than what anybody else has got going on around us. Jesus' disciples are just like us. And Jesus makes it clear that doing all of that takes us away from the call of God in which everyone who serves Christ is important. And ministry is a responsibility that we all share. So hear me on this, friends. Jesus can use the unknowns. Jesus can use the goofs. Jesus can use the ones who've made the mistakes. He does not cast his disciples aside here. Maybe you've run in Christian circles for some part of your life, or maybe you haven't. I mean, maybe you're the sort of person that really has never been around churched people. Maybe you didn't grow up and get a seminary education, or maybe you didn't even have a Sunday school education growing up. Maybe you don't have respect and popularity. That doesn't matter. Jesus can use you. Glorify him with what he has given you. Likewise, maybe you didn't, you didn't grow up apart from these things, but you grew up in the church. But, but maybe even as you've attained that education, as you've grown up in a godly family, you found that you've goofed a lot of things up. What's insightful for us here, that when Jesus' disciples goof a lot of things up, he does not cast them aside. He doesn't say, I'm finished with you. No, Jesus continues to use those who have goofed up if they will continue to press on toward the prize of his glory. And so I say, my friends, welcome to the community of the nobodies. Welcome to the community of those who have goofed it all up. Welcome to the community where the only one who really has any significance, the only one who really matters is Christ Jesus, our Lord. Welcome to the church. Use what God has given you for his glory. And I say to you, don't underestimate your value in ministry. That's the second lesson we learned from the master on how to travel with his message. Here's the third don't forget your mission and your destination. Verse 51 is the precise location where we, read, where we read that Jesus was determined to go to Jerusalem. This is where that travel narrative officially starts. And what was it that fed his determination? Well, the first half of the verse says that it was when the days were approaching for his ascension that he determined to go and do these things. Jesus was looking ahead to his ascension. Now, that word that's translated ascension here in the original Greek language is a word that only occurs one time in the entire Bible. It's right here. And it's a word that literally means taking up. So we don't have a lot to compare this word with. I mean, it could refer to Jesus going up to Jerusalem. I mean, Jerusalem was on an elevated place, so when people went up to that holy city, 
they would talk about going up to Jerusalem. It could refer to Jesus on the cross because ultimately Jesus was lifted up on the cross as he was executed there for the sins of the world. But most likely, I think this refers to Jesus' actual ascension where after he was resurrected, after he had spent time with his disciples here on the earth, after he had confirmed that he was who he said he was, he was actually ascended to the Father as his work in his first coming was complete. And I believe that Jesus was steadfast in his ministry, even through the opposition, even through those who would scorn him, even as the Pharisees and scribes tried to accuse him time and time again, Jesus was able to persevere through the trials of his ministry because he kept his sights focused on where he was going. And my friends, we likewise must remember what our mission is, remember what our ultimate destination shall be. You see, Jesus knew that he was only on this earth for a limited amount of time. And likewise, my friends, we're only here as aliens in a foreign land. We're only here for a temporary amount of time. This is not your home. Your home, if you are in Christ, is to be with him forevermore. He has gone to prepare a place for you so that where he is, there you may be also. And so don't get bogged down with this notion that the troubles and the trials and the things that you face here on earth are going to be the end of you. Keep your eyes focused on what lies ahead and living out the mission that he calls us to here and now. Jesus was steadfast in his ministry because he knew that this was temporary and his disciples should think no less. And so Jesus refuses then to just camp out at his exaltation. I mean, I can imagine it would be pretty cool just to stay there on the Mount of Transfiguration with everyone in awe of who you are. But Jesus, as we talked about last week, came down from that mountain. Jesus came down and carried out ministry. Jesus moved from exaltation in that moment to humiliation at the cross because Jesus has a mission. Ultimately, Jesus did not come so that he could be exalted. He was already as exalted as he could be. He came so that he could be humiliated so that he might ransom you, that he might rescue you back from the grave. He came to die in your place so that he might bear the curse that you deserve. He came to be resurrected so that you might have the hope that one day you can do the same if you are in him by faith. And so Christ kept his focus on his mission. He kept his focus on his destination. And old church, there's a reality here for us. We have a mission and we have a destination. If Jesus was willing to go, then we must be willing to go as well. We must not stay where we are merely comfortable. We've been given a directive by the king of creation that we should go and make disciples. When you come to church, you learn of his mercy and his grace through this gospel. You are being trained so that you can be ambassadors for his work. You are being trained to travel. You're being trained to go. And yet so many Christians spend their lives in training without ever going out to live the lives that he's called us to live. And when we refuse to go, we're like a man who buys a car and he pulls it into his garage 
And he makes a ton of improvements to it. I mean, he upgrades the steering. He upgrades the brakes. He puts on a new set of wheels. He puts on a new set of tires. He replaces the spark plugs. He upgrades the exhaust system. He upgrades the shocks. But there's one thing that he never does. He never backs the car up out of the garage. He never drives it anywhere. That would be a foolish thing to do. Would, would we not all look at that guy and say, why are you throwing all this money into a vehicle that you're never going to drive? Why are you improving it in its driving condition if you never plan on getting it out of the garage? And yet so many of us come and we gather together with the body of faith to be equipped, to be trained week after week, and yet we never back out of the garage. If you're here as a Christian, you're here for a purpose. You're here to bring glory and honor to the Lord Jesus by joining His mission. This is active training for ministry. Don't get stuck in the garage. Jesus was on a mission of mercy, and mercy required a cross. Mercy is simply the expression of compassion or forgiveness toward someone by another who has the power and the right to punish or to harm that one. That's what's on display so richly in Jesus here. He had the right to punish you for your sin against him. But he bore the punishment upon himself instead. So don't forget your mission and your destination. That's the third lesson from the master on how to travel with his message. Here's the final and fourth lesson from this passage. Don't condemn those the Lord intends to win. In verses 52 to 56, we see that the disciples are headed out on their travels toward Jerusalem with Jesus. And as they are going out, Jesus first sends his disciples to the villages that he is going to to prepare the way for him. And the first village that they come to is the village of the Samaritans. Now, the Samaritans were enemies of the Jews. I mean, they were the semi-pagan nation of people. They had descended from Israel. They came from the same ancestors but they were not faithful to God. When their nation split, apro- split apart such that the northern area became known as Israel and the, the lower area became known as Judea, when that split happened, that the people of Israel in that northern area were not faithful to the Lord's call, that they should not intermarry with the peoples around them because when they did, they would bring in the gods of those people around them. So what we find, in fact, is that they did bring in These pagans, they continued to honor the Lord, the Bible says. In fact, in 2 Kings 17.33, we read, They feared the Lord and served their own gods, according to the custom of the nations from among whom they had been carried away into exile. And so the, the Jews really did not like the Samaritans. Samaria was just originally a city that was the capital city of that northern country of Israel. So the whole region became to be known as the, the region of the Samaritans or Samaria. And, and the Jews despised the people who lived in that area. So much so that, remember I talked about Galilee being on the north, Judea being in the south. In between was Samaria. And if you were to look over to the east side of that, you would find the Jordan River. Okay, So instead of going straight from Galilee down into Judea, that the people who were the Jews, they would cross the Jordan River just to go down to avoid the area 
of the Samaritans and crossed that river again. So they would cross the Jordan River twice just so they wouldn't have to deal with these people who were despicable and despised to them. And these Samaritans here in this passage would not allow Jesus and his disciples to come through. Why? Well, verse 53 says it was because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. They were jealous. They didn't have a temple. Jerusalem was the place of the Jews' temple. They worshipped on a mountain. And as is so often the case in the Middle East today, there was no peace between these nations. So they rejected Jesus. They rejected his disciples. They would not allow them to pass through. And James and John had a suggestion in light of that. In verse 54, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? I mean, can you imagine that evangelistic strategy, right? I mean, you go out to a new place, you're ready to share the gospel, and somebody says no. You say, all right, poof, we're going to set that place on fire. I mean, you start tanking the place up with gasoline and throw a match in. That would not be a very good model for ministry, would it? And yet, that's what James and John recommend here in this moment. Now, there's a little bit of a tie here. If you remember on the Mount of Transfiguration, there were two individuals who were there with Jesus. One of those was named Elijah. Elijah was a prophet of God. And in 2 Kings chapter 1, Elijah was involved in this incident where the king at the time, King Ahaziah, fell ill. And he sent his men to go and talk to a false god at the Philistine city known as Ekron. He sent his people to go and inquire whether or not he was going to recover from this illness. And he's, gone, he's sending his people to a false god to ask that question. Well, Elijah, that same prophet who appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration, this prophet of God, he confronted the king's men. He told them a word from the Lord that the king would not get better because he had shown that he did not believe that there was a true God in Israel. This king eventually learns that the one who has said these things is Elijah, and so he sends an army after the Lord's prophet. A, a captain of 50 soldiers and his soldiers, and they come to Elijah and they say, Oh man of God, the king says, come down. I mean, they're obviously planning on taking him out. They're planning on a military engagement. And Elijah says, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. And that's what happened. So the king got a little bit upset about that. He sent another 50, and this time they're really ready for battle. So they say, oh, man of God, thus says the king, come down quickly. And again, Elijah calls down fire from heaven that consumes this people that are coming to destroy him. Well, finally, the king and his captain get the message. And when the third group of 50 soldiers and its captain come, we read that the captain of that military band said, well, he came and he bowed down on his knees before Elijah and begged him and said to him, Oh, man of God, please let my life and the lives of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight. And Elijah went with this one to speak the word that God had given him to say. So James and John then are ultimately these brothers. They're, they're brothers and Jesus even gives them a nickname. We read about that nickname in Mark chapter 3 verse 17. They were the sons of thunder. I mean, apparently these were some boisterous boys, John and James, to be called the sons of thunder by the Lord himself. And they were ready to wreak havoc. They were ready to bring a storm on the Samaritans. And Jesus rebukes them 
before that. He says, don't be eager for judgment. Be steadfast in your mercy. Why? Because the Son of God came to save and not to destroy. That's what Jesus says as he rebukes him there in verse 55. Now, Jesus had just proven himself to be the greatest. And now he shows the disciples how the greatest of all pursues mercy. The greatest of all does not seek his own vengeance. He is pursuing mercy. He is giving time for those people to repent. And this is a consistent theme throughout the Bible, that we, as the people of God, ought to be a people of mercy. We ought to be a group of people who are seeking to bring restoration. In fact, Proverbs 3.3 says, Let not mercy and truth forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Now, now is not the time for judgment. That's what Jesus shows his disciples. Now is the time to offer grace. Now is the time to warn about a coming judgment. This doesn't mean that Jesus ultimately would not bring to justice those who had refused his gospel in the long term. But no, through his grace, he has opened this time so that we can respond to what he has done. So don't press the Lord's mercy beyond his justice by assuming that he's just going to save you no matter what. There was a condemnation that was coming. And ultimately, Jesus would pronounce a curse on those who did not receive his message. He would say, woe to you, to these cities. And yet, that's not our ministry here and now. Our ministry is a ministry of mercy. Our ministry is such that if we are rejected, we should be patient. We should strive to woo those who are against us. I was horrified, as many of you probably were, to see this incident that happened Friday before last over in Christchurch, New Zealand, where one who did not like those who were stepping onto his turf, perhaps he just did not like Islam, he responded by by taking his heavy artillery into their places of worship and gunning them down such that 50 of those individuals died in this act of complete lack of mercy. That, my friends, is nothing at all like what Christ calls you and I to do. In fact, I would suggest to you that the outcome to that situation could have been different. I don't know the status of these individuals. I don't know what kind of opportunities they had before them, but I can only imagine that if we had gotten there before the guy with the guns did, if we had taken the gospel there first, the outcome of that situation could have been so much different. And yet, you know, it's a pretty drastic sort of thing for them to face immediate death because of someone bringing guns in. But all around the world, my friends, there are people who are dying without a knowledge of Christ. And we need to get there. We need to take the message there. We need to let them know that God is merciful. God is bearing with you. God is wooing you. God has sent his son for you so that you can have life. None of us deserves any of that. But by his grace, he has extended it to us. And by his command, he compels us to share that with others. The disciples' mentality was these Samaritans should pay 
for their sins. Whereas Jesus' mentality was, I will pay for their sins. And so in Acts chapter 8, it's so interesting to find what happens. I mean, can you imagine if, if, if Jesus had honored the prayers of John and James, how this village would have just been charred remains. But yet in, in, in Acts chapter 8, we read that those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. The crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them and with a loud voice, and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was much rejoicing in that city. Then in verse 14, Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them, listen to these names, Peter and John. I mean, John, who had called down fire on these people, now goes as a representative of Christ to these people. What happens? Verse 15, they came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. I mean, can you imagine John's emotions in that moment? To, to step out and see the grace of God acting in the people that he had once been so ready to condemn. I can only imagine there must have been tears that were streaming down John's face in that moment. And if you've read John's gospel, you'll know that there's nothing thunderous about this son of thunder in that gospel. He only refers to himself over and over again as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And I can't help but wonder how much this experience must have changed John. Because he who had been ready to show no love, he who had been ready to show no mercy, now saw the overwhelming mercy of the gospel as he got on board with God's plan. And you know, it's not likely that many of us are going to be calling down fire from heaven on those who are around us. But it's so often that sometimes... These Christians, those who gather in our midst, those who are involved in the body of Christ at various places, will indeed burn down a relationship in light of something that does not go their way. They find themselves in the workplace around unbelievers, and they see unbelievers doing what you'd expect unbelievers to do, and they lose their character. They burn up the whole opportunity to be a witness Later on, some of, some of you may say mercy is what you have when there are too many witnesses. There's a lot of Christians who can be like that. But let the mercy of God transform you from a son or daughter of thunder into a disciple who loves Jesus and who can be trusted to replicate that love and that mercy in the lives of others on his behalf. Richard Wumberland lived from 1901 to 2001. During his lifetime, he spent 14 years in Romanian prisons because he was an evangelical pastor. He later founded an organization known as the Voice of Martyrs to help educate Christians about the plight of their persecuted brothers and sisters in other lands. In one of his books, he wrote about a fiddler who played such beautiful music that everyone danced. A deaf man saw all of the merriment and thought that these people were crazy and they're dancing because he himself could not hear the music. 
And my friends, I, I got to say that that's what was going on with these Samaritans. That's what's going on in the workplace with your ungodly co-workers. That, that's what's going on in the mosques around the world. Unfortunately, that's what's going on in a lot of our own homes and in a lot of our own lives. Because until someone experiences the beauty of God's mercy and love, until they hear the music of the fiddle for themselves, they have a hard time comprehending the joy that we share. And so, my friends, I say, let us be the ambassadors of that music, the ambassadors of that joy, those who travel for the one who has called us and trained us to be his ambassadors, multiplying his glory on the earth. Maybe that's a song that you've never heard, and you see Christians gathering in a context like this and singing their hearts out in joy and praise to the Lord. You say, I just don't know what that's all about. I mean, what, what on earth are they doing? My friends, I just say, trust him. Come to him in faith. You will find joy unspeakable. You will find a hope eternal. Because that, my friends, is what Christ offers to us. And so there's a lot for us to chew on in this passage. But ultimately, Christ calls us to be traveling for him. I hope that's the prayer of your heart here this morning. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the one who did indeed travel. The one who came as a missionary of all missionaries. The one who was humiliated for our sake as he bore the cross. He bore the suffering. He bore the shame so that we might have life. And Father, those of us who are in Christ know that this is joyful. That this is a music that gives some energy to our steps. Yet so often, Lord, we are prone to get away from the path that you call us to. Renew our joy, Lord. Renew in our minds the hope of the gospel. That we might be involved in your mission. That we might be traveling for your glory. Guide us, O Lord. That we might be a body that is ready to be about your work. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.